25% of American men and 45% of American women are on a diet to lose weight on any given day. Americans are spending $40 billion, yes, that's billion, on diets and diet-related products each year. Now, do you feel you're current on the treatment of obesity? You're listening to ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Cynthia Bulick, who is a William and Jean Jordan Distinguished Professor of Eating Disorders at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She is also Professor of Nutrition in the School of Public Health and the Director of the UNC Eating Disorders Program. Today we're discussing the eating disorder of obesity. Thanks for being with us today, Dr. Bulick. Thanks for inviting me to be on the show. Now, this is a challenging field. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about how or why you got involved in this? Well, it's interesting that the first thing you said was that the obesity was an eating disorder, so that gives us a good starting point. But I'll tell you how I got started. I've always been interested in all aspects of weight regulation and eating behavior. You know, the bottom line is these two behaviors are fundamental to who we are, and it occupies so much of our time and so much of our thought and our family life and our social life it just seemed to me like an absolutely critical area to be involved in. Did anything trigger that? Was there anything in your past or uh, a patient or something along your educational pathway that made you realize this is how the disease is and how much it affects every aspect of our lives? Well, actually, early on in training, I was fortunate enough to do some training with people who were doing family interventions for childhood obesity. And that's really what got me on the whole family path and just really looking at how important it is to change the family as a unit and not just going at people one person at a time. So what is the role of families in obesity? And do you think most primary care doctors are addressing this issue? Because I think it's very important. I think it's a critical question. I mean, if there are one bit of data that, that are really clear, that is that to treat childhood obesity, you have to do it within the context of the family. The bottom line is the parents provide all nutrition for their children. The kids don't have a debit card and they don't go to the shopping center and buy their own food. So they really rely on the parents for purchase and preparation. And you can change the child all you want in the context of a therapy session, but if they go right back into a home environment that isn't supporting those changes, you're not going to get anywhere as a clinician. Now, it can be very hard for parents to say no to kids, um, and it can also be very hard to deny your child food. So how do you address that? Well, first thing is we're not talking about denying children food at all because um, then we start getting into my other area, which really has to do with being underweight. No, but parents <laughs> feel that way. You know, know. it's like, I you know, know, Johnny wants a Popsicle and he's been good in school, so I should give him the Popsicle even though he's, you know, 30% over his basic body weight. Well, you know, that's a perfect example because I would go right from that and segue with the parent into let's think of what other ways we could reward Johnny for his good behavior in school that has nothing to do with food. And you bring up an important point because part of this, part of learning how to really help families deal with childhood obesity is really helping parents learn how to parent more effectively. And, you know, so we actually have to go back one step and let parents feel comfortable that the decisions they're making are really in the best interest of the health of their children. But that's pretty complicated, right? You're changing their way of thinking, the way they react. It's behavior modification for the parents as well as the kids. Well, it's parenting training. It really is helping. We don't get parenting training in high school. You know, we can learn how to fix cars and we can learn how sometimes to cook, but we really never get skilled in how to parent. And these are really some basic skills that parents love. You know, when we provide parent training programs, parents simply eat up the tools and the skills that we give them because it gives them permission 
to parents effectively. What kind of what kind of training program do you have for parents? I'm fascinated by that. Well, we have a couple. We're actually developing a mother's um, intervention for moms who have had eating disorders in the past, and it basically helps them understand what a healthy portion size is when they're overvigilant about worrying about their children's body weight and health and helping them learn how when it's okay to say no and when it's okay to say yes. And these are kind of very basic, basic skills that sometimes we, as parents, we get confused about. You know, if we say no to the popsicle, there might be part of us that feels guilty about that because, you know, because Johnny did do well in school. When on the other hand, if we just turn that around and teach the parent how to get Johnny some stickers or give Johnny some other type of special time with their mom as a reward, you know, that can be just as effective without contributing to the waistline. As opposed to another game for Nintendo 360, right? Well, that just contributes to the whole sedentary <laughs> behavior problem. Exactly. Now, aren't families an important part of treating adulthood obesity, too? Aren't there spouses and parents that sort of psychologically go along with or enable their sons or daughters or spouses to be fat? I don't use the enable term all that often, but what I will say is that when change happens in a couple, it's much more likely to stick than when change happens in one person. And this is actually no different than smoking cessation. So if one member of a couple stops smoking and the other one's still smoking, that other person's smoking is a trigger and a temptation for the person who's trying to give up the cigarettes. The same thing can happen with obesity. If you have one member of a partnership who's saying, okay, that's it, I'm going to start eating healthily, and I'm going to start exercising every day, and the other member is watching TV and eating out of a bag of chips, that can be equally as tempting to sort of fall off the exercise and healthy food wagon for the person who's really trying to change their behavior. So then you bring the spouse or the parents or other people that live in the household, you bring that into the program as well if you're treating adults? If you can. If it is at all possible, it's great to have the whole family involved. If it's not, then you have to work with the patient to understand how much of a trigger those other people's behavior can be and give them skills to deal with that. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm fortunate to speak today with Dr. Cynthia Bulick from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and we're discussing obesity. Now, tell me, do you think primary care doctors are effective or learning to be effective at addressing obesity? I think primary care doctors are faced with an enormous challenge when it comes to obesity. I think They need more tools, and they definitely need more places to be able to refer people to for effective interventions. I think this is one of the public health problems where PCPs can feel quite impotent. They're often afraid to even bring the topic up because they don't know where to send people for help. So in part, it's helping PCPs, and especially pediatricians, learning how to bring up the conversation. How do you talk about this with families? How do you talk about this with moms if you're worried about their kid? And then if so, what tools do you use in order to get them to be able to change their behavior effectively? When should they start talking about somebody's weight as opposed to just saying, well, Americans are a little plumper, Joanne, you're a little bit larger, I want to see you in a few months. When should they get aggressive on it? Is there a cutoff? Well, there's not a cutoff, but the, the guideline is the sooner the better. What we really know is that it's better to talk to someone, to start the conversation, to get behavior change happening as the scales are going up rather than waiting until someone is tipping the scales. And it's the same thing with children. The data are clear about one more thing. Pediatricians aren't really good at eyeballing children and telling whether they're overweight or obese or not. It's not an easy thing to do developmentally in children. 
So they need to have really clear BMI screening where they're looking at the children's BMI percentile so that they can use that information in order to counsel the parents effectively. And, you know, parents can be defensive about this as well. And so good clinical skills are required in order to say this in an effective way. PCPs who treat adults may be prescribing such drugs that actually assist somebody in gaining weight, such as antidepressives. Um, I would guess that they not, may not be alerted to the fact that they need an intervention program with this also. If a woman comes to them and she's depressed already, you put her on a medication, um, say Paxil, that you tend to gain weight with, she's not going to be compliant, she's going to get more depressed, and she's going to gain weight. What are primary care doctors doing, or do you ever try to educate them? Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, part of it is, you know, some of the older antidepressants were actually a lot worse with weight gain than some of the newer generation ones, and so it really used to be an issue. The biggest problem we're having now is actually with antipsychotic medications. And many of these medications, even though they do a nice job, a reasonable job of controlling psychotic symptoms, they have a nasty side effect of extreme weight gain. And this is in adults and in children. There are many ongoing efforts now to try to understand who's most vulnerable to weight gain because everybody who goes on these medications doesn't necessarily gain weight. And people are trying to look at both genetic and personal factors that might contribute to who's vulnerable and who's not. Of course, ultimately, it would be great if we had effective medications that treated depression and treated psychotic symptoms and didn't have these side effects. And those things as well are being worked on. So tell us some of the things that you do at UNC that are probably unique in treating obesity. Number one, you involve the family. What else? We do some very interesting behavioral groups, and our behavioral groups do a couple things. We use multimedia interventions. So you know, one of the things that we do is in addition to the standard interventions that people often get when they come into a behavioral weight loss group, we have CD-ROMs that provide people with lots of very interactive homework activity. And this is for adults? For adults, yep. Mm-hmm. Another really neat thing that we've developed is a new way to self-monitor because one of the things we know is the best way to change behavior is to keep track of your behavior. But that usually meant like carrying around a little booklet that said, you know, weight loss program and you had to write down what you ate and all those sorts of things. Right, chocolate ice cream Tuesday. Exactly. But what we've actually been doing is using people's cell phones. So we've been having them text message um, Ah. the basic self-monitoring things. And we actually have an automatic program that records their data algorithmizes it, and sends them back immediate feedback on how they're doing. That's incredible. And it's really neat because you don't get stigmatized by carrying the book around. It doesn't feel like drudgery, and you get immediate feedback. So we think that these kind of things are the wave of the future in order to lead to behavior change. And we've been using them with kids, too. In fact, we use them in kids as young as six years old, and some skeptics said, oh, these six-year-olds aren't going to be able to do text messaging. And it was a parent-child group, uh-huh. and as it turned out, with our six- and seven-year-olds were teaching their parents how to use the text messaging. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd ascertain that's probably true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what else has changed? Tell us some other things you're doing that are innovative and that may be out of reach for some primary care doctors, but they're certainly interesting in terms of feedback. Right. Well, you know, the other things that people are really starting to find helpful And again, this is a technology-based intervention. And we haven't done this yet, but we do suggest it for some of our patients. And that is that they blog their own recovery and they blog their own behaviors. But not completely publicly, just choose a small circle of friends that they want to blog how they're doing in terms of their physical activity goals and their nutrition goals. And what that gives them is it gives them a sense of accountability 
It gives them a sense of pride when they're doing things well, but it also gives them a sense of support and community because people can comment on what they're doing. And, you know, in our world where we, you know, we don't have quilting bees anymore where we sit around and talk about things with our friends and right. sort of problem solve. Right. And it's sort of like, I view it as sort of an electronic quilting bee where you can really get a lot of people together on a blog or in a chat room to be supportive of each other in their behavioral goals. Do you think patients lie or are they more act? to tell the truth because this is their friends and people who know them they're talking to? Well, it's really interesting. We've found that people are often more honest when they use electronic media than when they're in a face-to-face situation. There's something about talking to a computer screen that <laughs> makes it a little different than looking in like somebody's a lie de- eyes. Like a lie detector? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you want to give a, a reference or you give the name of your website, someplace that maybe um, physicians can go to for more information? Sure. Our website is www. UNCEatingDisorders.org. Dr. Bulick, thank you for being my guest today. We've been discussing obesity, and I appreciate the time you took uh, to do this with us at ReachMD. My pleasure. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or to listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.